Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, I speak with the people doing interesting things in pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic medicine. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Rodney Rohde. Dr. Rohde is the chair and professor of the Clinical Laboratory Science Department at Texas State University and is also a microbiologist and virologist. Dr. Rohde has spoken and written quite a lot about the need for more laboratory professionals, and we'll talk about a few of those things today. We'll also talk about his work with the Global Citizenship Alliance, Healthcare Hygiene Magazine, and a few other things. All right, here's Dr. Rodney Rohde. Dr. Rohde, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much, Dennis. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, so currently you're, you're the chair and professor Clinical Laboratory Science Department at Texas State University. All right, so let's back up from there. Can you talk about uh, your educational background and how you got into teaching and how you got to where you are today? Sure. So my degrees, uh, my bachelor's degree is microbiology. Okay. I got that back in the 80s. I got a master's degree in, in virology. And mm -hmm. then I actually left school and started working for the Department of Health in Texas as a bench level microbiologist and molecular epidemiologist. And it really, that at time in my life, it was about a decade. I also did a couple of stints at CDC during that time as a business oh, really? scientist. Yeah, I was, and it really was, I often tell my friends and colleagues that it really cut my teeth on um, how impactful global public health could be, even with a, a laboratory focus. So I worked in uh, the zoonosis control division, and it was really at its time a a position that was ahead of its time. I basically got hired to be a uh, bench level molecular microbiologist, but I also was involved with the uh, inaugural oral rabies vaccine program. And was that at, was that at CDC or in in Texas? It's it was an international effort, but it was through Texas. We had two. Uh, major epizootics of rabies at that time in Texas. We had okay. several several deaths, and the front of that epizootic was approaching San Antonio. So this was about an 88, 89. I came on board in 92, and it gotten pretty out of hand. I mean, there were just, every day there were hundreds of animals that were rabid, and we had had two or three deaths at that time. So there was great concern that this front, this rabies wildlife epidemic was approaching San Antonio out of Mexico. Mm -hmm. So long story short, there was some technology at the time um, that created a recombinant rabies vaccine that we aerially distributed all over South Texas using uh, Canadian twin otter aircraft. So this involved the Canada, Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, the CDC, Texas Department of Health, the Texas uh, National Guard. And then just a hodgepodge of wildlife biologists and other people. But it was a phenomenal effort. We went every year in January and we distributed millions of doses. So it would take three or four weeks. And we basically blanketed the, the, the landscape with this vaccine. And so when an animal like a coyote or a fox would eat it, it would squirt this recombinant vaccine down its tonsillar area, which would vaccinate. Okay. And so, yeah, it was fantastic. And so we basically eliminated canine rabies in Texas. Um, and, and you can imagine the kind of effect that had on me as a young scientist. It, it sure. really set the stage for my future. So after doing that um, and just kind of doing traditional uh, 
diagnostics of of different rabies strains and arboviruses and anything zoonotic. Um, I had an opportunity to come back to Texas State to become a assistant professor in the clinical life science program. And all along this time, I would I was also teaching at Austin Community College as a as an adjunct. It was basically a part time gig. And mm-hmm. so I always loved teaching microbiology, and that's what I was doing. I was teaching nursing students, uh, kind of introductory medical microbiology, but never really thought I'd be a teacher. Never, never thought I'd be a professor. Um, okay. And had this opportunity. My alma mater called me back and asked if I wanted to apply uh, for this this full time clinical uh, position in laboratory science. And I was like, you know, I'll never get this job, but let me throw my name in the hat. And lo and behold, um, they offered me the position in 2002. And so I transitioned out of the state health department into academia and started there in 2002 in the clinical laboratory science program. And over the years, so I've been here 18 years now, I've moved through the levels of academia. So I'm a full professor now. As you mentioned, I'm chair of the program that I started in, and I'm also the research dean of the College of Health Professions. So I mentor and help all professors and units with their research. And I'm also the associate director. This is a relatively new title, the associate director of the translational health research um, at Texas State University. So wear lots of hats, mm-hmm. uh, but really love what I do. I still teach. Uh, you mentioned how I got into teaching. So I kind of started as an adjunct, and that's come full circle now back at Texas State. And even though I wear all these administrative hats and I do a lot of research and I'm really busy, I have just made it my goal to always teach at least some. So I teach right now a medical parasitology course, which is one of my favorites in the fall. And in the spring, I teach a molecular diagnostics course. Uh, and of course, this program is involved in the preparation of graduates to become medical laboratory scientists with credentials to work primarily in hospital labs, public health labs, and things like that. Okay. Okay. You mentioned translational health. Can you explain what that is? Sure. So translational health, we've over the years, we found out that Texas State has probably over 250 faculty that are doing some type of research in the health arena. And what that really means, translational, is that it will impact across kind of an interdisciplinary uh, landscape. So, for okay. instance, we have people working uh, in, the, in the College of Education, but they're actually doing autism. And so it impacts health, but they're also impacting the education of future healthcare providers. And so you can kind of, I mean, we've got people from that side of the world to what we do, which is really the more traditional clinical healthcare arena, all the way into nanotechnology with the College of Science and Engineering, and just on and on and on. So just really anything that can be impactful in all areas that kind of surround healthcare. Okay, that makes sense. It's really, it's really an interesting position. I really enjoyed it uh, because I'm sitting at a level now, not only within my college, but across all the colleges of the university and interacting with, you know, engineers and biologists and biochemists and educators and physical therapy in our own college, just whatever, Mm -hmm. and how they're kind of interacting and uh, really doing interdisciplinary research that impacts Texas and greater the greater United States. 
I imagine you're, you get to learn a little bit about these other areas as you're working with them too. That's, that's yeah, gotta be interesting. Right now it's of course in our current environment, I'm involved with, and this is me personally, I'm also helping other people, but I'm actually involved with a project in the college of science and engineering that is looking at, um, creating a mobile COVID-19 testing unit, uh, both, oh, wow. yeah, both one that you can kind of put on, like, you can imagine someone kind of putting on a, a plexiglass encased area so that you can kind of protect yourself while you're taking specimens all the way up to uh, one that will be um, easily broken down, thrown on a flatbed truck and moved across the country to, to places that might need help in collecting specimens. You kind of set it up really rapidly. Mm -hmm. It's uh, easily torn down and moved around, kind of a military model. And so we're sure. interacting with the private workforce to kind of produce that, as well as our own College of Science and our Star Park, which is kind of a business incubator. So that's just one example. But I mean, I work across all sorts of areas, smart materials, uh, nanotechnology, cancer diagnostics, uh, already mentioned things like uh, autism and things like that, and, and, and mm -hmm. into the social sciences as well. So. You know, trying to figure out how people adapt to this ongoing pandemic around mental health. So it's just, yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a really cool role because I get to kind of learn a little bit about all sorts of things while also kind of sticking to my own things. Right, right. That's, that, that's got to be very interesting. You know, you did, uh, back in, I guess it was 2016, you did a TEDx talk. Right on. Uh, right, which was called Saving Lives in the Shadows of Healthcare. Can you tell me how did you get involved with the with the TEDx? Uh, how, how did you get involved with this? And you know, it seems like your your topic nowadays is more relevant than ever. Uh, how did you develop the topic, and how did you sure. decide what to speak about? Sure, I appreciate that question. I am um, mm. really, I guess, how it came about was over the years that I've been at Texas State in the clinical life science program, and I know we're going to talk about this down down the road here, but I just become really involved and passionate about awareness of our field and trying to grow that awareness in a way that it can be powerful and impactful to different sectors of society. And in doing that, I kind of really got involved more in speaking and doing keynotes. I was already writing and I've done a couple of books and things like that. And, and part of that was getting more involved in the social media platforms like that, which I never thought I would do, but it just kind of evolved that way. Sure. But TED, TEDx is, um, if you know anything about the TED Talks, TEDx is kind of directed at universities. Mm -hmm. And I think 15 was the first year Texas State hosted one. And so I didn't really know anything about it. But the following year, I started seeing the uh, calls for speakers. And I just kind of started looking at it and the light bulb kind of went off in my head about this is a wonderful opportunity for me to get 15 to 20 minutes of potentially an international audience with a TEDx topic. And so I worked on, you know, some ideas and kind of kept refining that and ended up with the title there, Saving Lives in the Shadows of Healthcare. And really the focus of the talk was uh, not only about the medical life science area, but also about the environmental service professionals that do all the cleaning and disinfecting of, 
of healthcare and other sites. And really right. globally, it was about antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance and how how the laboratory, the medical laboratory specifically, was a part of that effort to curb, if not eliminate, antimicrobial resistance. So, yeah, I mean, looking back, it's kind of it's kind of eerie how it kind of uh, it almost like it was a foreshadowing of what was coming down the road. Yeah. So it's it's gotten some more attention in the last few months because of that, and I appreciate it. But you know, I mean. I think those of us in, in this field know that, I mean, I've known certainly as a public health and medical lab person for almost 30 years that, you know, we've been, we've been seeing these types of events occur. It's just that unfortunately it took one of global, you know, impact to kind of wake people up, I'm afraid. Right. So just trying to keep preaching the choir. Mm-hmm. What was some of the feedback you got at? you know, after the TEDx talk, I mean, imagine now you probably get a lot more, but like initially back then, did you hear much about it? You know, I did. Um, not not near as much as I'm hearing these days, but I did have kind of a initial uh, kind of explosion, if you will, of that going a little bit viral within my own community. So, mm-hmm. and that makes sense. I mean, medical lab professionals as well as EBS professionals are often kind of hidden in the background of healthcare and public health. So right. that in that community, it certainly went viral because almost any time they get some recognition about their, about their critical uh, contribution to healthcare, they are going to be excited to share that, and try to educate their family members and others. So yeah, initially it got a pretty good response and then it's, it's made a nice comeback in the last couple of months. And as you mentioned, you've you've gotten pretty active on social media and uh, things like that. I've I've seen other YouTube videos and interviews and things with you about uh, talking about laboratory professionals and uh, and their importance, especially right now. Is this you're trying to raise awareness? Are you trying to inspire people into lab careers? What did you have sort of a conscious yeah. goal for what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think absolutely all of the above. I mean. Um, so just for some context around this, okay. when I came into this into this academic setting of clinical lab science, and I tell this story sometimes in my writing, and I feel very uniquely qualified to talk about this because I did not know about this field. So I was at a university obtaining two degrees, a bachelor's and a master's, in microbiology and virology, and no one told me that literally across the street in a different college there was this this major called clinical lab science, which is synonymous with medical lab science. Mm-hmm. And I was and I was very much outspoken in my micro major about wanting to work in uh, like hospitals and things like that, but never really got any advising or anyone that really sent me this route. They just, you know, assumed that the microbiology and virology major would be okay. And it was, in a sense, it got me into public health. But because I didn't go through a program like this that allowed me to sit for a, a credential, I could not work at a hospital. So it was quite a surprise when I graduated, uh, not with just a bachelor's, but a master's. And I couldn't, I basically couldn't work in a hospital. So that was my first kind of introduction. And then when I got into public health, I started running into all of these individuals with these funny letters behind their names, uh, med tech. 
and which was the name of, of our profession at that time. Yeah. And kind of got to understand what was going on. And so I did it the hard way, Dennis. I, uh, and I would never recommend this, but I, I had to document all of my clinical experience in the public health labs because we didn't do that in my major of microbiology. And I had to document all that work. Um, I had to gain, I think it was five years of experience at the time. And then I had to sit for these different uh, credentials independently of any help or instruction through a major like this one that I'm in now. So I, I kind of backdoored the career, if you will. And mm -hmm. then okay. when I came back to the clinical lab science program, it was interesting because I had not gone through the very program that I was now a professor in. And um, now I'm the chair. And so I tell this story a lot because I want people to know, not just in college, but this has to get down into the elementary and middle school and, and high school age groups so that when we see fantastic um, students that are doing really well in math, science, uh, who are kind of detectives in the laboratory and love that world, they certainly need to be guided towards, you know, medical school and nursing and engineering, but they also need to be talking about medical lab science because there are shortages uh, in our profession. We reach shortages near that of nursing and others. It's just people don't see us. You know, we're not right. direct patient care. So we have kind of this upstream and downstream problem. So upstream, you know, high schools and middle schools don't know about us. They don't talk about us. So if you don't have a parent or a relative or a teacher that's a medical lab scientist, you may never hear about us. So that's kind of the upstream problem. Then you get to college and you still don't hear about it. And then you get out into the public as an adult, with children or whatever, and you don't see us. So you don't know who we are. You th most people think physicians do their lab tests. Or they think nursing does a lab test, and that's absolutely false. Right. They're not credentialed. No more than I could set up holy catheter. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a physician. And so that's my passion. You might kind of hear it in my voice. It, it frustrates us at times, but I'm trying to I'm trying to go about it in a different way, and that's through education, through storytelling, and now through you know this wonderful opportunity of your podcast and other social media opportunities and writing and and many of my colleagues are doing a great job, too. So just trying to get that word out. And it has had an impact. Our program here at Texas State, when I came to about 10 or 12 students a year, now we consistently take 20. But we have 50 applications. So I'm literally turning down 30 good students every year. Wow. Um, yeah. And sending them. Fortunately, in Texas, there's about 13 MLS programs. So they have opportunities to apply elsewhere, but some states have zero programs. So we get students from all over the country, and that's part of the problem. Um, we need to grow awareness so that program development can occur, mm -hmm. so that funding can occur, so that scholarships can occur. It's just, it goes on and on. When people don't know you, you know, nursing never has this problem. Everybody knows what a nurse is. Right. Uh, physicians, physical therapists, you, people know what those are, but we have to kind of keep defining ourselves. And one thing this pandemic has done, uh, it's done some bad things, obviously, but it has definitely put a focus on laboratory testing and the professionals that do it and the critical importance of it yes. uh, at a national level. Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's a giant spotlight on the lab now, 
And it seems like if there ever was a time to to do something to fix the problem of, you know, shortage of staff, now is the time because everybody, I think, is listening. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's funny listening to you describe your uh, your experience getting into the field because when I was in college, I I wanted to get into microbiology as well. And I, you know, I didn't hear anything at all about medical laboratory science. Mm-hmm. It it just, you know, it was, it was you, you know, teaching or I guess research, you know, right. which again, you had to get advanced degrees in order to do that. Um, right. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with those degrees. I mean, I right. loved, right. you know, it actually has given me a very hybrid background, but I certainly did it the hard way. I mean, if I would have been able to know about this, this four-year clinical lab science degree early on, I could have done it and then still done a master's in virology, you know, or something like that. And then I ultimately, which I didn't mention earlier, my PhD, I did later. So I did my PhD while I was here. Um, working my way through tenure, I went okay. back and did a PhD in uh, public health, uh, adult education. So my dissertation was focused on product resistance and MRSA. So really, it really came full circle, but I certainly kind of did it the hard way <laughs> mm-hmm. looking backwards. But I mean, and it, and it made me who I am, but I certainly want younger people to understand these different, at least understand their opportunities and options. Uh, to get immediately into a hospital laboratory if that's what their goal is. Right. Do you think there are bigger things we we can do to make that happen? I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, schools and they don't, mm-hmm. the, the children don't know, uh, don't know about this field. And, you know, and, and, you know, unless you've got, you know, career day or something, they don't well, hear about it. Is there a bigger, you know, regional or national program or s- something we can do to make that happen? You know, I, that's a great question. I think there is, and I think there are some things out there. And I'll give you a couple of examples that I think are really helping right now. One is, is uh, intentional that we've been doing. I guess it's, it's actually been over a decade, but it's really come to fruition in the last few years. We have created a new doctorate of clinical laboratory scientists. So it's a DCLS. Oh, sure. And I've heard this of this. Is, yeah. This is much like the Form D. Are the doctorate of physical therapy okay. and there's three programs now there's um, rutgers there's utmb in galveston so one here in kind of in my backyard in galveston texas and then there, the newest one is at uh, the kansas uh, medical school and what these do is you have to have a bachelor's uh, you have to have a, a credential in medical ed scientist already so you're already working in the field you have to have so many years of experience and when you apply to these DCLS programs, they're basically advanced coursework, not only in the laboratory areas that you're already doing, but it mixes in uh, the patient interaction. So this is, I have some great colleagues that are doing this already. Um, Dr. Brandy Gonzalez at Augusta, George's been doing this for a few years now. She was the first one, so I always called her the pioneer. Okay. But she is... She, she rounds with physicians. And so you're still doing your lab work, but you also get out and we're, we're using the, the hashtag bridge the gap. Um, so you're bridging the gap between the medical laboratory and the physician and the patient's kind of in the middle there. And so what we've always known is that physicians need help, uh, with 
not only picking the correct test, but also interpreting the test and all of the, you know, all the cross reactions that can occur or the interferences of, of, of even simple testing like vitamin D testing or something like that. So, and certainly in the world of genetic testing and advanced diagnostics, um, they, you know, they have enough to do. <laughs> so we're <laughs> yeah. trying to be that professional that can uh, really help them. It's all about patient quality and doing the right thing so that, that medical errors don't occur due to poor test selection or poor test interpretation. And what's come of that intentionally is that patients are seeing us. Now, it's, yes. it's a slow start, but it's a start. And, and we think it's going to be a basically a career track now. So you become an MLS at the bachelor's level. I don't know if you're aware, but there's actually an associate's degree, too, that you can kind of start out as an MLT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can go into the bachelor's level. Uh, there are plenty of master's degrees in our area, kind of specialty, like specialist in blood bank or something like that. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, if you are that person that's kind of a maybe a little bit more extroverted and you actually want to get out there on the patient front, then this will allow you to do that, and it will allow us to be seen and heard have a seat at the table uh, in hospitals. And I think that's going to help with understanding our field. So I think that's an intentional effort. And then I think, you know, ASCLS uh, and ASCP and ANT and other professional organizations, I think we're all working, and along with all of the other subspecialty organizations, at trying to put that face and that voice and that visibility on our profession and its professionals. And that's just going to be a, you know, you just have to keep beating the drum and keep telling the story over and over again. One of the things I do intentionally at Texas State is I, in the last five years or so, I meet, we have a program in August called Bobcat Preview. And so when freshmen are coming in during orientation, different faculty give uh, example lectures. <laughs> you can guess what mine is. I mean, right. I talk about rabies, or I, this year I'll probably talk about coronavirus. And so I grab mm-hmm. their attention, and then I immediately move to the major. And it's it's really had an effect. So we, we just need champions uh, out there in the academic field, and we need champions really in the political realms to grow programs in different states that are losing. So that's, that's kind of been my focus. Okay, okay. So then I, I think with the the kind of the current coverage of a lab. And then you've got mm-hmm. these DCLS students who are, you know, meeting the public at least, at least a little bit And that's, yeah, that's definitely going to help both of those things together. Well, another thing you actually have a recent article in uh, Forbes magazine, which is, you know, very popular. Uh, and you discuss COVID-19 and the, the need for more lab professionals. And I know you've written about this in other places as well. One of the things you mentioned in the article, you, you stress the the idea that, you know, we've got our normal workload that we have to do. And this the COVID-19 testing is on top of that. And that's, you know, we're, we're already understaffed and now we've got extra work. You know, I've had in a previous episode, I had Dr. Konstantin Kanakis and he talked about yes. COVID testing in the lab and how you know, the things you have to do to, to verify and validate a test, you know, what are, what are some things we can do in the future when this inevitably happens again? How how can we be better prepared? 
Yeah, that is, man, that is the question of the year right now, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. and Dr. Yeah. Dr. Constantine's a great colleague and friend. Um, yeah, he, I'm sure he was preaching, preaching the same message. Um, you know, I think not only has this pandemic kind of, sh- kind of helped shine a light on what can happen to a, a laboratory system when you don't have enough expertise on deck, but it also has shown kind of our general workload. And so I kind of mentioned earlier, not only do we have shortages, and this, again, to be fair to my colleagues who point this out to me, it's not this way in every state or every region. So there are places where we have plenty of laboratory professionals that are getting jobs and there doesn't seem to be super shortages. But what I continually talk about and try to remind people is that's true in some places, but What's happened is over the years is that the laboratory has been one of the primary cuts um, when it's come to budget and reimbursement and things like that. So what we've done, and this is kind of unfortunate, but it's a pat on the back, is we've learned how to deal with it. I mean, we do more with less. We have our professionals are trained to to juggle a ton of things at one time. I mean, we had great students that become great professionals. And, you know, they're used to this. They're used to uh, handling emergencies and juggling different parts of the lab and and prioritizing specimens and which ones to do first and all those things, all on top of validating, you know, new assays and new equipment and making sure everybody understands that you just can't throw in a test and start using it. So we're kind of the gatekeepers of quality. Um, and we often call ourselves the doctor's doctor. I mean, we are there to provide the critical information for patient care. And so I think it's going to be something uh, with respect to preparation that as supervisors and laboratory managers in these settings, we need to do a better job about documenting our workloads and we need to make a better a story to the the C-suite and to those above us about the critical need for physicians and uh, a better job at cross-training so that in some small rural hospitals, you might get more, you might get more cross-trained because you're only one or two people covering the entire lab. But in a weird way, you might think a large city or a, a big system healthcare would have would be better set, but they may not be because they may have 12 people, but they're each specialized in their own little area. They've kind of lost the polish on how to do molecular testing or whatever may be needed when all hands on deck in the pandemic. So, so that education has to happen and we have to continue to talk about, you know, um, how do we structurally fix this? Uh, how do we get more professionals, more cross training and and um, just more programs in the pipeline so that we're prepared for future. And, and we know they're coming, I mean, whatever the next it is, right. uh, it will happen. And so have we learned our lesson right now? Are we learning lessons that will prepare us for future pandemics or future other types of health emergencies where we are relied upon? It's difficult, you know. I mean, one of the things I think we all fight in healthcare and public health is nobody wants to be. And this isn't a this isn't a criticism. It's just an observation over and over that proactive healthcare is not not really at the top of the favorite list. Nobody wants to pay for things before they happen, 
Uh, and, yeah. and we all know, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure, but that's hard work because it costs money and it, and it takes preparation. And so when we have these events, you know, I, this isn't my first rodeo. I've been through West Nile virus and anthrax and rabies and flu and SARS, the original. And, and I just hope and pray that this time that we have some type of memory um, that will help us to get ready for the future, as you mentioned, because otherwise it's always reactive. Right. And it's just not a, it's not a good place to be when it's healthcare. Right. And I think in the end that re reactive sort of policy that, you know, that costs more money anyways, more money, oh, more absolutely. time, more people. Yeah. 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 And what's hard is, I mean, you hit it right on the head there. What's hard is we also need people that are really smart to show that difference. Like, how can we show that being prepared is cheaper? Because ultimately it's about money, as you know. So, I mean, if you can show, for instance, that we can prevent healthcare associated infections happening now, what that means on the back end of you don't need, you know, a hundred grand to treat one single patient for an, for an antibiotic resistant infection. So, I mean, it's really across the whole healthcare spectrum. I mean, proactive is always cheaper, but it's hard to prove. Right. Without good yeah. modeling and good data. So did you approach Forbes with this article or did they, did they approach you and ask you to write it? The way it happened again, and this is a culmination of probably the last, really in my whole career, but the last seven or eight years with all of my writing and speaking and things that I'm doing, I've been invited to be a contributing author. And so okay. I'm a contributing author for ASM's uh, Bugs and Drugs. I'm a contributing author for the Healthcare Hygiene Magazine, which we may talk about in a little bit about the Bug Buster Box. Yes. And Forbes is the most recent. So Forbes just, I guess they saw some of my articles or someone may have recommended me. I really, I really haven't asked them to be honest with you, but they reached out to me last year and asked if I'd be a contributing author. And of course, I was honored and humbled and excited because Forbes is a totally different platform, different audience. Right. And um, so I was excited about that. And I started bouncing ideas off of them. Of course, it just happened to be the perfect timing because it was Medical Life Professionals Week in March or April, rather. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started kind of bouncing that story off of them about, man, this is a perfect time to, to discuss not only COVID, but Let's do it in the context of celebrating the medical lab. And right. so it, it, went, it went pretty well, I think. I want to take a short break right here and introduce you to another podcast that I recommend. Hey, everyone. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents and the hosts of Dead Men Do Tell Tales. A podcast about forensic pathology-related topics. We've talked about everything from CSI and Bones, reality versus fiction. To natural disasters and poisonous plants. It's been a great learning experience. And we've gotten to taste a lot of really good whiskeys along the way. Oh, and don't forget about the beer. And other mixed drinks, too. So if you want to hear more about the science behind autopsies, an MD's role in death investigation, or, you know, your favorite mixed drink, <laughs> you should hop on over and take a listen. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, and probably a few others that we don't even know about. <laughs> Thanks, Presbrow. <laughs> Talk to you all soon. And now back to the show. You mentioned earlier you've, you've authored and co-authored uh, several books. 
One of them that I wanted to talk about for a little bit was on rabies. It's called Rabies, Clinical Considerations and Exposure Evaluations. And it seems like that sort of ties in to your earlier work with the uh, health department uh, with the rabies vaccinations and things. Is that how that book kind of started? Yeah. And I, again, I love the opportunity to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Um, rabies is is something that, you know, grabbed me early in my career. It's the first area I worked in in zoonosis control. Uh, again, not only on the laboratory side of developing uh, the kind of the first molecular testing in test Texas uh, for discrimination of these different rabies strains that are out there in wildlife, but also uh, on the epidemiological side. So in that big oral rabies vaccine program. So I created amazing friends, um, not only in Texas, but across the country and really across the world. And so it really, rabies has been a central core of my research and teaching experience from probably 94 forward. Okay. And I had several colleagues at the Department of Health in Austin. Pam Wilson is the primary author with me. Uh, and then Dr. Ertley was one of my former supervisors. He's a veterinarian. And then we had uh, Dr. Rodney Willoughby, who, if you didn't know, he is the gentleman who implemented the Milwaukee Protocol that really saved the first person from uh, a rabies exposure after symptoms developed. Okay. And so those are the four of us. And uh, we just, we all love to educate. And we were approached by Elsevier because I have done some articles. Uh, already on rabies through Elsevier. I'm a contributing author to, to them as well. And they thought there was a need for this kind of a book about rabies that wasn't your typical book. So this book is aimed at really the public health world and the healthcare world on how to really deal with a, a rabies case and how to handle uh, questions around you know, what constitutes a true rabies exposure and how do you evaluate that and how do you handle that clinically and what are your options? And kind of gets into the the nitty-gritty of stories and case studies. And then of course we do some history and things like that around it as well. But that's kind of how it came about. And it's been very well received by the rabies community. I did a uh, poster and interacted with the rabies in the Americas meeting this past November in Kansas City. And we're actually about to publish a commentary editorial of kind of the, the future of rabies diagnostics. It's, it's being in review right now, so that should be coming out. Okay. So, so rabies okay. has been my one of the loves of my life with respect to, to discussing and doing research. Uh, can you tell me about the Global Citizenship Alliance? I know you're you have a role in this. I, I was reading a little bit about it on uh, through your website, which I'm going to link your website and all of the things we're talking about. I'll, I'll put links for all these things in the show notes so people can read more about them. And there's Great. there's a lot more that we probably won't be able to get into today. I had a hard time kind of narrowing down what we were going to talk yeah. about. Yeah. So, but I'll link as much of that as I can in the show notes. So, okay, the Global uh, Citizenship Alliance, what, what is this? Sure. So, um, and I have you and I appreciate you making that comment. I have, I've often been, um, when I talk to the folks that start working with me on different things, they kind of wonder 
how I juggle all these different things. And yeah, so do I, I. I'm, not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, I love what I do and I just seem to have found a way, I guess, to make time for them. And I have to, I've learned how to prioritize at given times. Um, and I guess what they say is true. When you love your work, it's not really work. So I, sure. I do have yeah. lots of things that I work on, but this one is one that came out of my uh, role as an adjunct faculty at Austin Community College, where I've taught for 25 years. I continue to kind of teach there. Again, people wonder why I do that, but it's because I get to interact with community college students and I get to recruit them into medical life science. And so it's kind of synergistic with my, my plans, but. Okay. What ACC has is they have an international office like most universities and colleges do. And a few years ago, I noticed this call for presentations about uh, globalization. And I got to looking at it. I've never really participated in it. And it was an opportunity for me to talk about globalization and infectious diseases. And so they have a monthly seminar, basically. And so I put in my proposal and it was accepted. And so I ended up doing a, a basically a, an hour discussion over globalization and infectious diseases. And they taped it and they had it on their closed circuit TV and things like that. So it's actually available. But the goal of this is that ACC tied into this, this alliance. And so they're kind of working through the Global Citizenship Alliance, which was founded in uh, 2015, kind of as an independent nonprofit organization. But it goes all the way back to 2004 under the auspices of the Salzburg Global Seminar. So this is a renowned international policy forum based in Salzburg, Austria. And really what they're about is promoting critical engagement with the effects of rapid globalization, kind of trying to create good global citizens across the world and, and everything about that. So. You can find this, as you probably know, if you go look it up, but basically what they're doing is tying into different universities and colleges, and they're inviting you to like these week-long seminars to become a global citizen and really an ambassador. And so that's how I became a global fellow. And so that was really through my, my side gig there at Austin Community College, where I went back and actually got to go to Potsdam, Germany, uh, do a week-long seminar, and then I came back and spent a year in a kind of a faculty-led monthly seminar workshop where we talk to other community college faculty. And and ultimately, the goal is to implement globalization in their courses. So whether that's talking about climate change or talking about infectious diseases, I mean, right now you could be talking about this pandemic uh, and how that affects all of us. So if I had to put it in one sentence, it's basically, you know, recognition in the world that we're all interdependent on each other and that, you know, we need to be thinking about that, not just locally, but globally. That's a good message. And then with that message, you're, you're speaking at the upcoming ASCLS meeting, which is what, end of June into July, yeah, correct? Right. right. I'd like to know what a little bit about what you're talking or what you're going to speak on and you know it's a virtual format this year like like a lot of meetings right now what what do you think what do you think of of that kind of format it's it's going to be interesting 
Um, so I'm a little, I guess I'm a little bummed, but I'm also excited at the same time. I mean, I ha- I've had, um, I guess this is my third or fourth conference that's been canceled since about March that I was mm-hmm. either a keynote, keynote or, a, or a breakout presentation. So I think we all miss the networking opportunities, you know, outside of the meetings and things like that. But yeah. I do think the potential is there for, you know, we can, we can reach a lot of people. And so I'm starting to get excited about the idea that if I promote this a little more, I know my colleagues are, we can reach outside of the traditional people, you know, the several thousand that show up in person. We could potentially reach, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Right. So it may be a great recruiting tool, an awareness tool about what we do. And it's really, I think we really need to focus on that with what's going on with the pandemic because we might find a mechanism to get this shown uh, to different people and people of importance that can kind of help us leverage it. But it'll be interesting. I've got, I've got three other, for my, typically I'm doing something in the infectious disease world, but this year I'm doing a talk with three other people, really awesome colleagues. And we're going to talk about leveraging social media uh, for the profession. So I'm going to kind of talk about leveraging uh, what I do in kind of my area. And then we've got a, uh, ND pathologist who's going to talk about some things mm-hmm. and a couple of other things where you can get into the roles of kind of being careful around, you know, patient confidentiality and things like that. So kind of the whole realm. Um, we've only got an hour, <laughs> so it'll be challenging with four of us, but, yeah. but I'm excited yeah. because it, it's a different kind of a different topic. And I've been doing these more and more. Uh, with respect to my involvement in social media and other types of media to try to, and it's really important that I do that because like I mentioned, I mean, literally five years ago, I was actually avoiding social media because I had two kiddos that are now college students and I just thought it was a dangerous place to be. But what I've learned is while it does have some, some risk, um, it, it's really about how you use it, as you know. So if you do things yes. professionally, and you follow the rules, um, you can be very engaging, very provocative, and very, uh, you can reach different audiences. Certainly, I need to be reaching young people and, and other people. I mean, I don't even think it's an age thing anymore, but it certainly reaches different types of students or potential professionals that might look at us a little closer if they see it in that type of format. Well, I definitely agree. I've gotten more active on Twitter in the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and it's there's a show, just a wealth of of knowledge and information out there, and I, I've learned so much just from that. Oh man, I can't I can't tell you how much I've learned from colleagues that I've yet to meet in person, but it become amazing right. kind of e friends, right? I mean, I got all these amazing friends around the world, and 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 sometimes I'll just do a quick help. <laughs> help me on Twitter. I need some information uh-huh. about this topic and I don't even have to go do any research. It just comes flying it. So it's, it is a right. wonderful tool. Yes. Yeah. And you're right about that. It's, it's people all over the world, you know, and, and, you know, through this podcast too, you, you mentioned the E friend. I think of, of all the people that I've, that I've talked with so far, I think I've only met one actually in person. Right. So uh, yeah, there's, there's lots of ways to, to meet people online these days that yeah. uh, that that can be good and I, and I think it's helpful 
Okay, and then the last thing I wanted to ask you about, so the Healthcare Hygiene Magazine has come out with, it's called a Bug Buster Box, and, and you're involved with that. What is this? Sure. So, again, I appreciate the opportunity for this as well. I am, I became pretty involved with a group, I'm going to say three or four years ago, that, that was called the Healthcare Surfaces Institute. And so, and this is all tied into the umbrella of antibiotic resistance and antimicrobial resistance. This group is really focused on surfaces uh, as a target for, you know, cleaning and disinfection as a way to to make healthcare and really other community areas that involve health. So it's not just hospitals. It could be a dialysis center or something like that. Okay. But to build smarter buildings and to and to look at surfaces in a smart way so that we are not putting in, you know, carpet or certain types of materials that are known to be a problem for reservoirs for microbes. And then also raising awareness for not only the surfaces, but for the individuals that clean them. So the environmental services professionals out there, the housekeepers, the custodians, the people that are on the front lines of of really knocking out those microbes. They're really a critical part of patient care that we kind of forget about. And so that kind of started there. And then this um, healthcare hygiene magazine uh, came about about a year ago, I want to say. Uh, Kelly Pyrek uh, put this together and she's kind of aligned herself with the Surfaces Institute. And she reached out to me about nine, 10 months ago if I wanted to do a monthly column called Under the Microscope. So I've started that, and that's been rolling along pretty well. I basically pick a different bug each month and do an 800-word commentary on it. And now she's basically got to the point where the magazine is going to roll out this wonderful continuing education type of program to get CEs, and she's calling it the Bug Buster Box. Okay. And this will be a hour, roughly hour seminar each month uh, where nursing and other healthcare professionals can gain an hour of medical um, or other types of CEU for their for the maintenance of their credentials and stuff. And so we we taped our first episode last month. It's over one I'm very familiar with, which is uh, Staphylococcus aureus and MRSA. Mm -hmm. uh, that right. one's done. It should be it should be produced. I'm sorry. It should be um, published any day now. And then we're about to tape our second over uh, Clostridioides difficile, C. diff. And we're just going to roll out a different uh, focus each month. And so people that participate in it not only get that CEU, but they get the, um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the plush microbes or the, you know, the um, they look like little uh, creatures, you know, but like I've got them all over my room that way. Sure. Person. Yeah, so they've they got get, those four uh, organs too. Yeah. yeah, so they get they get that as part of the the deal and some other some other benefits for doing the purchase of the CEU. So, so I'm excited about that and uh, kind of where that's going to go. But that's kind of keeping me uh, focused on antibiotic resistance as well. And we're just going to keep covering different organisms, uh, one per month. And we do have COVID-19 coming up this summer to kind of try to put a focus on, you know, it's been about, I guess when we get to July or August, we'll have about five or six months of of experience with COVID-19. So maybe 
focus a little bit on not just the history of it, but also maybe the realm of how we can be better at preventing it in healthcare and even in the community setting. Okay. So this is like a subscription box? Yeah, it's uh, so Healthcare Hygiene Magazine, you can go in um, and become a subscriber to that. Okay. But then this is a feature of it that would be kind of a paid um, webinar opportunity along with some some cool additional things like the plush microbes and some of the other stuff that she's uh, offering through that particular opportunity. Okay. So we're trying to get the word out about that as well so that really, I think her goal in mind too is to really get healthcare professionals that are not microbiologists or that are not medical lab professionals and to get kind of a snapshot understanding about how critical it is uh, to understand them, you know, to really understand how dangerous Staphylococcus aureus is so that, you know, a nurse or a physical therapist or whoever will kind of understand that with patient education and how they're doing their job. Mm -hmm. So what's like the target audience for this? Like, I'm thinking if you've got, so you've got a kid who's in high school or, you know, grade school or whatever, would this be something for them so they can learn about these things? You know, it could. It really could be. I hadn't really thought of it about that way, but what a great idea. I've never really thought about targeting people that aren't already in the field, okay. but it certainly could be uh, because we do it at a level that's pretty broad. I don't dive into the weeds too much here and there. I do, but generally it's kind of a broad understanding of different microbes and their impact on healthcare. Uh-huh. So yeah, that that's actually, you know, kind of an interesting concept. If like, uh, that's really a good idea, actually, like if you targeted a, <laughs> high school or a junior high, you could even target a class, right? So someone teaching microbiology or, or healthcare classes, uh, pre-nursing, yeah, uh, allied health uh, types of courses where you might start getting people interested in the microbial world and their impact on healthcare overall. But I think the primary audience will continue to be allied health and healthcare professionals kind of all walks of life to get their CEs for their credentials and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That sounds a great, like a great idea. That's a very different take on the uh, subscription box that right. seems to be right. a popular thing these days. And Kelly's been great about that. She was with, um, it's not her first rodeo either. So she was with uh, infection control, another entity for many, many years. So she has a lot of experience and she's brought a lot of wonderful uh, people to her team. We have EVS professionals, we have nurses, we have myself, uh, we have um, people that are kind of OSHA experts around healthcare and surface experts like architectural. Like, I mean, so we're even looking at people that build and design, um, you know, materials for walls and floors and drapes between patients. And so it's really, again, it's one of those areas that kind of crosses over into all my interest. Uh-huh. of how to make an environment safe for people. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. All right. Um, I, this, I think this would be a good place to wrap up. And really, sure. the, we've only scratched the surface on a lot of these things. So like I said, I'm going to put links to all of these, and I, I hope people go and read more about them. And um, we probably could have gone on for another hour at least. I think, <laughs> and more people things. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate it, Dennis. I hope not either. I mean, it's it's certainly something I'm passionate about. I think you are too. I really appreciate yeah. the opportunity to to join you on your podcast, and I'll do everything I can to turn my colleagues and friends 
onto this podcast and what you offer. Uh, oh, that's wonderful. It. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it was a pleasure to speak with you today. Absolutely. Same here. Great big thank you to Dr. Rohde. Uh, like I said in the episode, there was a lot more we could have covered in this one. So definitely go to the show notes and uh, check out the links to the things on his website. It's really interesting stuff. And if you know someone, you know, maybe a high school age student who is interested in science or maybe a career in the lab, definitely share this episode with them. And uh, together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. A uh, quick shout out to Tori. She's a recent PA graduate, and she wrote to me to say she was a fan of the show. So uh, thanks for that, Tori. Uh, I appreciate it. You can follow the show on Twitter at People of Path. I am a member and the CFO of the American Association of Pathologist Assistants. This show does not necessarily represent the views of the AAPA and receives no financial support from the AAPA. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast. Thank you.